The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Now, I've been a tech journalist, conference speaker, and whatever else I'm pushing that day for around 30 years now, and a lot has changed. One thing that's largely the same, though, is a slight nervousness about just how we're going to make this human and technology thing work, and how we define ourselves as human when there's talk of augmenting ourselves with technology and a great deal else. Now, one person who's done an awful lot of work looking at these areas is Dave Copeland, who's been around <coughs> years working for Microsoft and who's now at the helm of the Envisioners a consultancy specialising in forecasting and predicting where we're going and how it affects the workplace. Dave, welcome to the Near Futurist podcast. Thanks for having me, Guy. You're welcome. So, Dave, tell me about your specialisms. What have you been up to lately? It feels like my entire career, Guy, has been working in the technology industry, but actually over three decades, what I've figured out is the most important thing. It's got nothing to do with the technology, but it's got everything to do with the humans that use it. And I've been in and around lots of innovation. I've seen some amazing technologies come and go, but you realise that the human is both the strongest and the weakest link in the chain. And so for me, the work I do, the work the Envisioners do, is really, how do we get humans to be in a position to live up to the potential that technology has to offer? And in particular, for me, there's a very important technology that's around right now, and it's artificial intelligence. And for me, it's something that I feel is going to change everything in the world around us. It's not one of these step changes. It's not like moving to the cloud. It's not even like the arrival of desktop computing. This is something massively fundamental. So if you bring this sort of potential of AI to the potential of humans together, how are we going to emerge in that? How are we going to live, work and play when the algorithms support everything that we do? That's interesting. It makes it, you make it sound as if we're going to have to change as much as the technology because we're hardwired to evolve at the speed of evolution, uh, whereas technology is hardwired to eventually evolve, to evolve itself through AI. So how do humans change? How do we start to prepare? How do we stick to our human strengths? Well, the first thing is we have to realise that we need to change. And one of the things for me, as a, again, as a lifelong technologist, is you look around and you see what we've typically done is we've taken new technology and we've applied it to old ways of working and old ways of living. The computers that we use for work, they replicate the working practices and procedures that were put in place in Victorian times. And so I glibly say that we, we still work like we're Victorians today. It's just we use this new technology to do that old Victorian way of working a bit quicker or a bit cheaper. Well, this isn't the gift of technology, and especially when you look at the potential of things like AI. So the, the challenge for us in the short term is to figure out, given what AI can do, how do we get into a position where we could take advantage of that rather than get it to work the way that we've always been working? And so you talk about the speed of evolution. At some point, evolution needs a gentle nudge. And whether it's a meteorite falling from the stars or us saying, do you know what, actually there's a different way for us to approach this, something has to change if we're going to get any of the benefit that's coming our way. Okay, now I know you do a lot of work with young people, a lot of work with, you know, you have a stage show presented around the country. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that, but also about the changes that are coming into play for young people what they're changing, the way they are doing things at the moment. Yeah, so I, I find this really interesting thing emerge in my life. I'm a, I'm a parent, I've got a 12-year-old son, and my day job is I spend my time working with big organisations, looking at the future and mapping out how they are going to change how they work and the products and the services that they offer. And so I do that a day, and then I come home at night and I talk to my son and I realise that the skills that we are giving my son today 
are not going to be skills that are going to be fit for purpose for the world of work or the, even the society that he is going to inherit. And then I start thinking more deeply and I thought, well, look, as, a, as an adult, I'm essentially the guardian of the future for younger generations or one of the guardians of the future. And I have a duty of care to make sure that we both prepare a future that's worth having, but equally we give our younger generations the skills that means that they can take advantage of that. So what skills are you giving your son? What skills well, so, are you so let's, let's, for these young people? Let, let's cut to the sort of, first, let's start with a problem. So if you look at the skills that we are giving him today and any you know, young kid, we're teaching them things like, we're teaching them to be calculators. So the best mathematicians in the world are, are arguing, they're screaming from the top of their lungs that 80% of the maths that we teach our kids is completely irrelevant and they're not sure about the other 43% either. What they say, they're basically saying is that we are teaching our kids to calculate, we want them to do complicated long division in a world where they have access to incredibly powerful calculators that can do that calculation for them. The long division, they could do that in our day as well. Yeah, no. I, I remember my parents being outraged that we were going to lose these skills, not spotting perhaps that we hadn't actually learned them yet. Yeah, well, you know, the, the joke I offer at the end of most of my gigs is that when I did my maths O-level at school, I did it with a logbook and a slide rule because we weren't sure about the potential of calculators. Well, I'm a better mathematician with a calculator than I am with a bit of paper. Now, the point is, we need to know the basics of arithmetic and, and the, the 20% of the stuff that we're not teaching is things like, you know, my son and his generation, what they need to know is they need to know how data works. They need to know if they want to prove or disprove a theory, what's the data that they would need to be able to do that? And how would they need to use that data to find the answer they're looking for? So that's number one, is basically that what we're teaching them around maths and how they use data is completely irrelevant. The other thing is, you look at it, you think about our kids, that they walk around with a device in their pockets that essentially allows them access to every single fact, every opinion that our society has ever known since the beginning of time. And we are not equipping them with the skills to make best use of that. So my son is being taught to remember the incidents leading up to the Battle of Hastings. Mm -hmm. Why is he learning that? Yeah. He shouldn't be learning that. What he should be learning is how does he find that information out? We had this sort of little uh, challenge when he was at school a couple of years ago. His English teacher basically sent him home and had given him a telling off because he'd used Wikipedia in one of his bits of homework. And she'd said to him, John, how do you know you can trust Wikipedia? And he came home and he was a bit upset by this. He didn't like doing things wrong. And, and also, you can imagine in my house, in our house, technology is kind of worshipped rather than feared. And he's like, Dad, well, why would you say this? And he says, OK, John, when you go back to school tomorrow, just say to your English teacher, how do I know I can trust my English teacher? Right? He got detention for that, but you know, okay. well, we all learn a lesson. Actually, uh, how do I know I can trust Wikipedia question is not a stupid question, is it? There's a lot of fake news out there, stuff like that. So yeah. maybe these are the skills that we need to be taught. And, and that's the point, is don't teach our kids that they can't use the internet. Teach them how to use the internet. Teach them that, yes, it's lovely that you share videos of cats doing silly things, but actually, if we give you the right skills and the basis of this information and the power that you have at your fingertips, imagine the world that you could build, imagine the problems that you could solve, if we, as, as the people who have the duty of care to give you the right skills, could put you in the right place. And so this is where I start from. For me, I see a world where the algorithms will support us and they will be not answering the questions for us, but they will be giving us insight that will help us answer. So my son and his generation are going to need skills like, I mean, I think there are three core human skills, creativity, empathy, and accountability. So creativity is really about, in a world of ambiguous sort of problems, we know today, for example, World Economic Forum report says that of the kids going into education today, 65% will go on to do jobs that don't currently exist. 
we don't know what kind of world they're going to inherit. So what skills can we give them to make the most of that opportunity? Well, we need to teach them to be creative. They need to be problem solvers. They need to be able to think differently. Because the algorithms, for all of their power, they cannot think differently. They only think within the framework of the patterns that they've been provided with. So we need to encourage creativity. And that's why I'm a huge fan. Everybody talks about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. It's STEAM. The arts are crucially important for everybody. And the other one that's going missing, some friends of mine are teachers and uh, another family member works for a local council. And what's actually missing is uh, it should actually be STEAM because we're missing the humanities. Yes. I'm not suggesting that there's something that there's going to be a worldwide shortage of geographers or something. But uh, we're, we're so focused on STEM and we're starting to acknowledge that the arts need some attention. Yeah. The humanities also yeah. is uh, part of that equation, which is currently getting quite neglected. No, I like that. And for me, it comes back to the things that support creativity. There are two things that are are quite crucial. One is curiosity, and this is where the humanities, I think, does come in. We need to be curious about the worlds around us. We need to make sure that our younger generations are curious around the world. Because when you're curious, you start to ask the right kind of questions, and you start to think about what makes things work. How could we make this better? So being curious is a really important skill attribute for us to encourage people to adopt. And the other one I'm, I'm really trying to push is, is boredom, and the value of boredom. You know, we, even as adults, are losing touch with what it means to be bored, because we don't allow ourselves to be bored anymore, or rarely, because we will fill that time with watching another episode on Netflix or catching up on social media. Or the podcast. You can always listen to the podcast. Well, well, the beautiful thing about podcasts is you can do two things at once, so they allow you to, to work in different ways. But the point about boredom is we are at our most creative when we are bored because it's almost like a force of necessity, right? We have to do something creative. And so one of the things I'm encouraging younger generations to do is they need to find some time when they can be bored. So look, that's creativity. Empathy is pretty simple, right? In a world where the algorithms can support us all, one of the things the algorithms can't do very well is engage with humans on a human level. You know, I've got an algorithm that can detect your emotion based on doing facial recognition, but it doesn't in itself know what being happy or sad or bored or tired actually means. So we will, for the considerable time to come, or sort of the time being, need humans who can engage with other humans. And so we need to be able to be mindful about what makes other people tick, what are the skills that they're going to need. And then finally is accountability. And this is one of the most crucial things, I think. And it's something that is the antidote to what people expect to happen when machines finally rise up. And accountability is simply, just because the algorithm says this is the answer, it doesn't make it the answer. Every algorithm works on the same principle, which is I'm going to give you the most likely answer in the least amount of time. It's a probability. And we humans, we owe it to ourselves to take that as what it is. It's a probability. We need to combine the best of the algorithm with the best of our human intuition to come up with the right result. So those are the three skills that we, I think that our younger generations are going to need to be successful. They're also the same skills, by the way, that we're all going to need if we're going to continue to... I was just to going to come on to our generation because, of course, the younger generation will be in work before you know it, but uh, actually we're there already and the skill sets we need are changing beyond recognition. When you're in companies, what do you typically tell them what, what are people not doing that they need to do just to be ready for the present, not necessarily the future? There's a number of things. One of the things at an organisational level I focus on is we have grown up to be fixated by efficiency. We are taught by economics um, and since the Industrial Revolution that to be truly productive is to make more in less time. 
And so that over a couple of hundred years has put all of the focus of work on, on the process of work. How do we make the process by which we make the widget better, more faster, cheaper, or something? We never stop and say, do I actually need to make that widget? Or is the widget actually being used for what it's supposed to be used? Or is there a different kind of widget? And so increasingly with companies, what I'm saying is efficiency is important, don't get me wrong, but we're starting in the wrong place. Let's not start with the, how, what, how we've done it in the past. Let's start with what's the outcome that we want to achieve. If we know what it means to be effective, then we can work backwards and we can use the technology to deliver that in, in a way that makes more sense. But then when you think about the people, you know, one of the challenges that people like you and I, Guy, and, and people of our generation are going to have is that the skills that we've relied on for so long, for most of our career, are actually going to increasingly become a commodity or irrelevant in this world. And so what we've got to do is we've got to be quite resilient in that. We've also got to, there's a glib phrase which is sort of lifelong learning, but we've got to come to terms with that we don't reach a point in our lives where we no longer need to learn anything. That will never happen or should never happen to us. So we've got to be curious. We've got to be interested in what's going on. And we've got to see the difference between the tools that we use and the outcomes that they enable and really start to focus on the outcomes and, and not get so het up about what, which tools that we use to, to achieve them. How do we infuse people about that though? It's one thing, you and I who are interested in the way the world's moving forward and who are, if you like, educated and eloquent people. You know, there are other people out there who may be doing sort of a boring job uh, and who haven't got much education, who just don't see why everything is changing or why everything should change. Now, I don't want to generalise, but uh, those are the people you've got to reach if this is going to work for everybody. Yeah, look, I think that there's a number of things that you need to do. The first is that we've got to make sure that people really can engage with the value that's on offer. A negative example, right? Stuffing a checkout machine in my supermarket does not fill me with excitement about the future of robots in society. It fills me with dread. It basically says we're going to marginalise this service to a point where we don't care about your customer experience, but bloody hell, we need less people so it saves us money. The more experiences you have like that, the less you're going to trust what's going on. So we need to flip that around. We need to say, do you know what? I can change your customer journey. I can add value by automating some of it. Not so you have a worse experience, not so you have a cheaper experience, but so you have a better experience. We use it to create a better experience. The second part of this is the opportunity that we're seeing today with AI is especially for the people who are doing the robotic parts of work. It's, it's to take the robot out of the human, not to replace the human though, to enable the human to do the things that the robots can't do. And this will be the key challenge that most businesses face is we'll be able to save them lots of money, but if they choose to bank that saving, if they choose to bank that saving by saying actually, do you know what, there's a whole bunch of people in the workforce I no longer need, I think it's a really short-term view of what's going to happen and I think it's really dangerous. So I think organisations will, A, probably not be in business five years from now if that's the route they take. Secondly, they're going to put the economy in a lot of peril as a result of doing that. So what we need organisations to do is be a lot more thoughtful about, yes, I've made a saving, where do I reinvest some of that saving to reskill people or to create more value for our customers? And that's really what we've got to do if we're going to win the hearts and minds back of the people that we're, we're trying to, to reach. I accept everything you've said in principle. I think it's, uh, that's exactly where we should be going. I'm aware you're also not executive on a number of boards of private businesses so you've got shareholders breathing down your neck they want more profit on the bottom line how does that argument go when you're talking to them it's tricky but it's pragmatic and the thing that we can show is you know so what one of my um, board is a hospitality business and there is a direct correlation between the quality of service you receive and your spend so how much you'll spend in the in the outlet and also your likelihood to return so yes I can say look I can save some money over here by doing anything from automating the dispensing of drinks or food through to predicting the labour schedules that we'll require for the coming week. 
But if you mess with the service, you know, so if I can take out one of the things that we focused on, which lots of people are doing now as well, the point in the meal is really sort of inefficient where you're asking for the bill and, you know, first of all, you have to catch the attention of the waiter and then they come over and then they need the card machine. So they're sort of disappearing backwards and forth and then finally you pay and you can leave. Well, what if you just pay your bill on your phone? So you pick up your phone, I know my table number, I enter, tip and my thing, and I'm out the door. When you do that, and you do that a few times, it's a bit like contactless. The first time it feels a bit weird. Second time, it's not like quite like this. Third time, like everywhere I go now, if I can't pay, I'm, I'm not going there. But that doesn't mean I now leave less people front of house. It means that those people now can add more value. They can come around and say, what's your meal, guy? Can I get you anything else? Would you like a drink? Would you like a dessert? And it's so it's, we're building out the business model. So what I've seen in the conversations with the shareholders is if you play out that value proposition, if you play out, this is how we're going to give our customers a better experience. This is how we're going to give them a premium experience. They see that. This is sounding a little bit like the, um, is it Amazon Go, duck the money, for you, you yeah. pick up something in a store and you walk out and you yeah. deduct money as you yeah. leave. Now, a lot of the research that's gone on about whether that's going to take off in the US has suggested that people think it's a terrific idea, they really like it, and they're terrified of it, and they wouldn't want it on their doorstep because they just forget and walk out with stuff, and it's not like spending money, you don't even have to wave your phone at somebody. So there must come a stage where technically these things are possible, but culturally and experientially, they're really not great things. Not yet. And maybe not ever, but we should be asking the question. So one of the conversations, again, sticking hospitality, is if I could replace the barman or bar lady with a robot that dispenses drinks, is that a good thing? Now, I'm not for a minute saying it's a good or a bad thing. I'm saying that we will soon have the possibility to do that. What we should then have a conversation is, what, what do we lose in the experience if we do that? What's the value of that? When you take someone out of the checkout in a supermarket and replace them with a box uh, that works 50% of the time, sorry, that's a bit of a load. When you take someone out of the, yeah, the checkout... Yeah, it's an exaggeration, yeah, we yeah, get that. Yeah, okay, 75% of the time. What are you missing? What do you lose? And, and uh, what is the customer experience? My whole argument for digital is if I'm not delivering value to you as an end user of that service, then I'm not doing my job. And companies, they're very keen to jump on the bandwagon of digital and everybody needs an app and everybody needs to do this. But if they're not doing it in a way that helps their customers get on with their lives, then actually they're just they're doing this all a disservice. Right. Okay, well, I get a feeling we could probably talk about this sort of stuff for absolutely forever, but we'd lose lots of listeners. So I'm going to suggest we wrap it up there, but how do people find out about more about you and your work and what you're doing in the immediate future? Well, I'm a really easy guy to find. You can find me online at uh, theinvisioners.com or even more simply, you can search on me and find me at Dave Copeland. The internet, both search engines know where I live and they can easily find me. That's great. Thank you very much. Many thanks again to Dave Copland, and of course, thanks to all of you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.net. After you've looked up Dave's website, of course, where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. You'll also find my speaker showreel. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or moderator of your technology event, do have a look and then get in touch with my agent, Zippera Wright. That's Z-I-P-P-O-R-A-H, Zippera, at jillybushel.com, jilly with an I-E. All of the details are, of course, on the site. The next episode of the Near Futurist podcast will go live on the 23rd of November. My name's Guy Clapperton. Thank you. See you then. Thank you.